Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The United States criminal justice system can be a challenging and often deliriously expensive labyrinth of court filings and trial dates. My guests today are two women representing those most in need of assistance navigating that system. Attorneys Renata Lunn and Susan Church. Renata Lunn trains and supervises public defenders for New York County Defender Services, an organization serving the city's most vulnerable communities. But first, I'm talking to immigration attorney and advocate Susan Church. Church successfully represented the Occupy Boston protesters and sued the Trump administration over its so-called Muslim ban with her Massachusetts law firm, DeMissy & Church. She now represents individuals involved in the Martha's Vineyard immigration case, Pro Bono. This past September, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis commissioned two planes to transport migrants seeking asylum in the United States. They were flown under false pretenses from San Antonio, Texas, to the wealthy vacation island of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. The move was an attempt by DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott to draw attention to illegal immigration at the border. The stunt made headlines as a cruel and heartless ploy, and DeSantis was criticized for playing political theater with people's lives. Before we got into the specifics of the Martha's Vineyard case, I wanted to know how Susan Church found her way to progressive politics. So this is a really interesting issue. I'm adopted. Uh-huh. And I grew up in a very conservative Republican household. Wow. I grew up all around the country. So Idaho, North Carolina, we moved around a lot. But they were kind of like what we call weld Republicans. So they're kind of sure. like the Mitt Romney Republicans. They were not, you know, blatantly like today's Republican Party. They're the old Republican Party. But I found my biological mother when I was much older, when my children, I had some problems getting pregnant. And so I found my biological mother as my children were being born. She's a left-wing Democrat. Like, yeah. She's Angela Davis. Your yeah, yeah. real mother is Angela Davis. It's yeah. very funny. It's very interesting. So I always talk about that because sometimes I think empathy is genetic in some ways because I certainly did not get it from my growing up. Now, in your career, you've been working in this kind of law for how long in immigration-related law? So I started immigration law in 1996. My husband is actually from Ethiopia, and he was switching law firms. And he said, just take this one asylum case. You'll love it. Because I was a criminal defense attorney, and that's what I really loved. How long did you do the criminal defense defense work? So that was, sorry, I meant 1990. So three years, I was a public defender. And that's all I ever wanted to do. Where were you living then? New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. That was fun. Now, in a place that, I mean, I don't know New Hampshire that well, but I have friends who are from there and have homes there. What was the typical criminal defendant who needed public defending 
A lot of drug cases or what? Yes, lots of drugs, lots of heroin even back then, lots of domestic violence and lots of sexual assaults. That was kind of the big crime that was going on there, especially the indecent assault and batteries on the child and things like that. So that was unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And so your husband says, take this one case. What was the case? It was in, my husband's from Ethiopia, so it was a political asylum case. From Ethiopia? Yes, yeah. And he had a great asylum claim, but he had gotten into some immigration-related problems with this case. It wasn't filed correctly. You know, his lawyer had screwed everything up, and so he was in deportation proceedings. So I represented him in that, and I fell in love with immigration law from that point in time. One thing I'm also wondering, just in terms of the background of this thing, with the people you work with in this issue and beyond, how are you paid? I mean, do they go and get money they raise from wealthy benefactors? Do PACs that you work with or not-for-profit groups? I mean, where do they find the money I mean, you're not doing this for free. you got to be paid something, correct? I really don't believe in taking money as much as possible for tragedies. Like, I, I did all this work on Afghanistan. I didn't take any money. The travel ban work that I did, I didn't take any money. I feel like it really is exploitation to try to get these individuals to pay me. But I work with a lot of nonprofits, and the way they operate is they get grants, they get individual fundraising. They're always on shoestring budgets. Yeah, groups I've worked with that are very well-known groups will all kick in money. We'll sit, they'll, they'll say, we need money for legal fees. Oh, yeah. It's, we got to raise a million dollars like in a month. Send us, we, you know, we want, you know, 20 people to send us 50 grand now. Yeah. And so they can get the legal fees going because their budget wasn't just allowing that. They just need a team of lawyers on the ground for election protection or whatever it is. So. Absolutely. And they need it. Like, you know, I worked a lot with South Coast Legal Services on this case. And they're a, a, just a tiny little nonprofit that does legal services. Just, I mean, very shoestring budget. And they had lawyers at the site day after day after day, all day and night at the base once the migrants from uh, Martha's Vineyard were moved to the base. So tell us. What happened in this case? What are the facts of what happened? Okay, so these 49 individuals are almost all Venezuelan immigrants. Why? That is a really good question. We know that the Venezuelan economy has been deteriorating for quite some time. So was there an, an expanded concentration of Venezuelans trying to come into this country? No, I think this is what I think. And I think your question is really smart because normally in Boston, we have El Salvador and Guatemalans, Central Americans, and they all have family that they go to normally. So you don't see them hanging around at shelters. They don't necessarily need money to get a a bus ticket because people are sending them money to make the trip. Mm -hmm. But Venezuelans are in probably one of the most dire situations right now. And so they're just leaving, often with no money, often with no resources, often with no contacts in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they are therefore much more easily preyed upon by the likes of DeSantis. And I believe that's what's been happening here. Well, aside from being preyed upon by DeSantis, because that's a huge net that's been cast of people preyed upon by DeSantis, the Venezuelans, is Texas the normal destination for them? Is Texas? Texas or Arizona. Arizona, for that's normal for immigrants from any part of Latin America. Yep. Okay. So these people come to Texas. They've been there for how long? It was just days. So they've been there for days. Just days, not long at all. And where were they? Where were they? So what happens when you come into the borders, you get into one of the federal processing holding centers and the border patrol officers take your photographs, take your name, try to figure out if you have any family in the United States, do a background check. And then after a couple of days, they, if you, usually you pass what's called a credible fear interview, but that didn't happen here, which is also a little suspicious to us. We don't know why. Instead, all of these individuals were paroled in which is different. It's a weird legal status that we don't see much up here in Massachusetts. It could be more common at the board, and I've been asking my border friend attorneys around. It's not that common, but it's not out of the ordinary either. So no one's suggesting, I take it, that anybody behind this was deliberately casting criminal elements to come in just to embarrass the Biden administration. None of these people were people who proved no. to be criminals No, and, and many drug of them, lords. Absolutely not. And so, you know, I have one particular client who had been out of Venezuela for years. So I know there was a right-wing media story going around that, that Maduro had opened the jails and sent these people here. But right. based on our reviews, that's absolutely false because people had been out of, the, out of Venezuela for some people a year. So I, I met one guy seven years he'd been gone. So they just finally made it to the U.S. border after years of trying. Now, where was this? All 49 of them were in the same facility? 
No, this is what's so interesting. And this is something the media is not picking up on and nobody seems to be investigating. All 49 of them in various forms made their way to this shelter in Texas, in San Antonio, that had just been opened in July, just in July. And Perla, the woman who was lying to them to get them onto the plane, waited outside that shelter. Now, why I'm suspicious of that shelter is it has a three-day rule. You can only stay there for three days. I don't know about you, but I don't know many shelters that have a three-day rule. What's the point of a shelter that says you get to stay three days? I, it doesn't happen up here. And it just opened in July. When you have the three-day rule, what are they assuming in your mind? What are they assuming? Where are you going to go? Home? Exactly. How does anybody find a house in three days or an apartment in three days? It doesn't make sense, right? And it doesn't serve the purpose of a quote-unquote shelter, except for Perla to stand outside and recruit people who were suddenly found themselves homeless again after three days. Mm -hmm. Of course, because this is slightly more complex than people might imagine, these are people who are in a state, is it a Texas state or a federal facility that they go to? It's a federal facility. So they're going to a federal facility in the state of Texas, and where does DeSantis, the governor of Florida, come in? Why is DeSantis deciding that Texas's immigration problem is under his jurisdiction? So that's the craziness of this story also. They were picked up from Texas and flown to Florida after stopping in North Carolina for some reason. And DeSantis's argument is that they would have eventually ended up in Florida. So we're going to bring them to Florida to then fly them to Massachusetts. All of it is just part of his stunt to get credit for, quote unquote, removing individuals. So he's calling Abbott and saying, could you lend me some illegal immigrants? Because I really want to embarrass the Biden administration. It's ridiculous. It's right. ridiculous. And the crazy part is it's part of this $12 million that I don't know if you saw this, but the Treasury Department is now investigating DeSantis for this nonsense because the money that they use is part of the interest on the American Recovery with Act funds that they were given for COVID in 2021. So they took that money and put it towards these flights. So a plane flies them. How many planes were involved in this caper? Two planes. Two planes. Who, were the, who owned the planes? The state of Florida? Well, no, it's a private aviation with connections to Matt Gates. Another interesting fact. Uh -huh. So Matt Gates used to be the attorney for these private company that chartered the flights. But what I'm curious about is, I mean, it's not that complex to follow. It just, it's, 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 it's mystifying to understand why. So the governor of Florida, who is presumed to be the likely nominee if Trump gets more black and blue than he already is right now, he gets a private aviation company to fly to Texas to pick up 49 Venezuelan immigrants in multiple low federal locations there, bring them to North Carolina. You don't know why in North Carolina? We think it was for a pilot change, but I still don't understand why there would be a pilot change because, like, it's not that far of a flight. It might be a refueling one. That right. that Some of the clients guessed that that's what it was about. And uh -huh. some of the clients said it was a pilot change. We, we don't really know for sure. And where in Florida do they land? The panhandle up in the north. Right, up near where the capital is. Yeah. How long are they in Florida before, or is everything already nice and greased and everything's ready to go? I mean, do they land in Florida, and do they go right to the vineyard? I think they were there just a long, long enough for DeSantis to hold a five-minute press conference about it, and then they left. They didn't seem like they had been there for very long. They weren't totally sure what was going on, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. Well, DeSantis is someone who it's assumed he's going to use every single facet of the state of Florida's regulatory apparatus to uh, benefit his supporters and to punish his opponents and to humiliate uh, the Democratic uh, administration. And I wonder, is DeSantis, at least through the prism of this case, is he viewed as someone who he was the architect of this himself or other aides of him? Who authored this program? Who came up with this idea? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like it is him. He's. Right. I feel like what you've brought up is probably one of the most important things that's going on in the Democratic Party, but that everybody's missing. Everyone's focusing on Trump. Trump is at least wounded. Maybe he's not dead yet, but he's certainly wounded. And he would have a much harder time getting the presidency than DeSantis would, in my opinion. If DeSantis were the nominee, he does enough nonsense like Trump is, but he's much smarter, much, much smarter and much more capable than Trump 
ever can imagine being. Right. And right. he could do real damage. Yeah. So my question had been, was DeSantis or someone underneath him the architect of this? And the planes themselves, if you take two planes, I mean, I've flown on private planes, and they didn't cost me anywhere near $12 million. To fly privately on a plane that can handle, you know, 16, 18, 20 people, that's more like $85,000 round trip cross, cross country. They spent $12 million on these planes of COVID funds? No. So what they spent was six hundred thousand dollars on the first on the first two flights, and then after the first two flights, there was a second payment for nine hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. So it was about a little more than well, it was one point five million. So with two flights going from from Texas to Florida, stopping in Carolina, and the flights that went to Martha's Vineyard, how many planes were involved there? Two again. Two, but before the flights, each of the, and I don't think this is up to 1.5 million based on what you're telling me the cost is for private flights, but before the flights, there were McDonald gift certificates that were given out as bribes to individual to sign the waiver form, the quote unquote waivers that weren't even in fully in Spanish. There were hotel rooms for anywhere from one night to a week for each of the uh, 49 people. I don't know what that works out to. And they, they had two other handlers besides Perla. So there was Perla and then two other people. Well, I want you to stop for a second and give us a kind of a thumbnail on who is Perla. Uh, this is another super interesting thing, which has DeSantis's uh, name written all over it. She is a counterintelligence individual from the army who also was a medic who had just left, been discharged from the army in August. I don't think it's been clear What's yet. What's her last name? Perla Huerta, H-U-E-R-T-A. And the New York Times did a story on her, I think it was this past weekend, where they've identified her. So I gave the New York Times at least three different photographs of Perla that my clients or other clients at the base had taken. And then the New York Times did some investigation and verified that this is the person. So Perla... Has anybody come forward? I mean, I, I don't assume that all these people, regardless of what effort they make, can operate exclusively in the shadows. Did you find out anything about her, who she is, and was she involved in other? I mean, a woman named Perla Huerta, I don't want to be too generalizing here, is an emissary of one of the great anti-immigration yeah. efforts in this country in the last 25 years. Who is she? I mean, yeah. what, what was her role in immigration? What was her role in the DeSantis administration? She doesn't seem to have any role because she just got out of the army. She's counterintelligence. That's really what. Well, if she's is working important. for DeSantis, she's certainly yeah. counterintelligence. Right. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to note that she's counterintelligence, right? Because this is a good example of what you were talking about earlier. If Trump had hired this person, just imagine the buffoon they would have hired, right? It would have been some fool who probably didn't speak Spanish and tried to use interpreters or whatever. Instead, they've hired this woman who appears to be native Spanish speaking. My clients told me that she was Mexican, Colombian, or Venezuelan, depending on which client you talk to. So you don't even know based right. on her. That's And that's a big thing to pull off, right? Not to be able to fool these immigrants into thinking which country she's originally from. And she's paid to lie as a counterintelligence officer. Mm. So when I heard that, I really thought this is much bigger than a buffoonery Trump stunt. This is the type of thing that they do when they're competent. And it, that's what scares me about him becoming president. Attorney Susan Church, if you enjoy conversations with women fighting for justice, check out my episode with attorney Becca Heller, who fought back against Trump's Muslim ban. Heller is the founder of the International Refugee Assistance Project. The thing that was amazing about Airport Weekend is that, like, we organized the lawyers, but nobody organized the protesters. Totally spontaneous. Thousands of Americans went out in freezing, shitty January weather to just be like, this is not cool. The executive order was rescinded before the lawsuit. The lawsuit we won said that they can't hold people, but the one that we won right away wasn't about sort of the legality of the order on its face. It was the public pressure that got the administration to rescind the executive order and the so-called, like, chaos at the airports, which I will forever be proud of. To hear more of my conversation with Becca Heller, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Susan Church weighs in on the laws against human trafficking and whether the Martha's Vineyard debacle qualifies.
Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Attorney Susan Church is fighting for the immigrants involved in the Martha's Vineyard case and arguing for bringing charges against the DeSantis administration. I wanted to know how she first got involved with the case. So the story is that the clients were dropped off at the vineyard. They were dropped off in front of what they call a house, which apparently is the Martha's Vineyard Community Association. And then, you know, the police were called, the media was called, the story got out. Had the media been tipped off by the DeSantis people in advance? We believe there was a Fox News reporter on the island that day, yes. We yeah, believe so, yeah. They, they wanted them there for the landing. Right, exactly. Right. All staged. Right, all staged. All a stunt, all at the expense of right. these people's lives. So when you have immigrants in the media, often they make statements that are detrimental to them. You don't want them doing that. Were you aware of what was going on while that was happening, or you didn't know about it until it landed on the vineyard? No, not until the—I didn't even know—I didn't read the news that night. I didn't know about it till the morning I got the call. So when, they, when the plane lands in the vineyard, who calls you? Who tips you off? Or you saw it on the news? I got called by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Yvonne Madrigal Espinal. And he said, get on a Zoom right now. And then right. so everyone said, OK, who's going to go to the vineyard? Because somebody needs to go right away to protect the clients, get statements from them about what happened so that we can later use that in the lawsuit, which, of course, is what we did. You want to get facts down right away in situations mm-hmm. like this. And that's what lawyers are quite good at. So my law student went on Thursday. I went on Friday. And Yvonne had a couple of his lawyers there. Rachel Self was there. And then we were. I was at the base every single day for the next, like, 10 days almost. People often assume, because the word human trafficking has been injected into this event, is this human trafficking as far as the law is concerned? Or you don't know? I don't think it qualifies. I've spoken to probably one of the best human trafficking experts for immigration. Others. But like people who were sexually exploited, these people were lied to as to what the circumstances yeah. were, correct? So that's the argument. They were told they were getting on a plane for what reason? Oh, every lie under the book. They were going to get a job. They were going to get permanent housing. They were going to Washington State. They were going to California. They were so going they were to- given a false, a patently false inducement yep. to get on that plane. For political gain. So you are right in the sense that if there is any human trafficking argument, the political gain portion of that would be. But human trafficking is moving people for a financial gain usually. So we, you have to try to monetize political gain. Why Martha's Vineyard? Meaning, in, in my mind... Uh, I mean, I've had a home on eastern Long Island among, you know, a fairly thick stripe of 
well-to-do seasonal people, many of whom are the, 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 the captains of media and titans of media. Martha's Vineyard is the same. There's a lot of media giants there. I could name a few. But not all of them are liberal Democrats. I mean, some of the most conservative ones live up there. Why Martha's Vineyard? Why do you think they did it? Was it because of Obama? I'm guessing it was because of Obama. I also think they wanted to torture them by holding them captive in that way, by putting them on an island. One of my clients told me that when he realized it was a hoax after they rang the doorbell for the Martha's Vineyard Community Association, they all started feeling like they were going to get in trouble for being on the island. So they tried to run around the island and get off, looking for a bridge off the island. Of course, there is none. So I think that added to the drama of it. I also think it was because they wanted to stick it to Obama. Also, Martha's Vineyard is a super diverse island and and a very community-oriented island. I keep saying that they picked the wrong island. There was a tweet that somebody else said, if you're going to send a bunch of uh, people who are impoverished and not powerful don't send them to Lawyer Island next time. So I really feel like they made a mistake in doing it because they, they picked the wrong island. It's, it's a great community of great people, and they really rallied around these individuals. I don't know if you know this, but they all are going to get green cards now because of this trick. The U card. The U visa, yes. The U visa, yeah. What is a U visa? A U visa is something that Congress needs to fix. It's not a great option, but ultimately is a victims of crime visa that leads to a green card. There are 10,000 given out in any year. There's a huge backlog, but at some point in time, it's a application that will lead to both a work authorization and a green card for these individuals. I mean, obviously, I'm someone who has a very bitter perspective about the Supreme Court. You've got three people. You've got Gorsuch. You've got Barrett. And you've got Kavanaugh, who lied to the American people, who bald-faced lied and said that abortion was codified law. Did you see this coming in your work with immigration? Did you see something or something like this coming, these kinds of stunts? Were you surprised? Absolutely surprised. I mean, I just, I I don't know why I continue to believe in the decency of humanity. I mean, I was well aware of the busing that was going on to the northern states. But to be honest, as long as people were told honestly, yeah, you know, I want to go to New York and here's a bus ticket. I don't have a problem with that. I think they're much better off in in blue states. They have more access to better judges, better green card capabilities and everything. But I can't believe it. I still can't believe they would sink this low. And I, I, I must be naive, but I still don't believe that they demonize and dehumanize our clients this way. I just, I've never gotten over it. Well, state income taxes in New York are obscene. Yeah. And they are obscene, but we're using them to pay for things to improve people's lives. Right. Taxes in Florida, which I think there's zero taxes down there, there's no state income tax, and other states that have very low income taxes— the way they achieve that is they don't take care of anybody. You don't have any medical care that's worth shit. You don't have any education that's worth shit. They cut and cut and cut services. And the way they can, in other words, if you come to this state and you got a retirement account, you're, you're a retiree, which is Florida's renowned for, you're a retiree and you got an insurance thing that works for you and you, you, you know, you're, you're covered, you're taken care of. Right. And you come down here, this is the land where you come where you don't give a shit about your neighbors and what happens to them. Everybody's on their own, every man for himself. Florida is the state of every man for himself. Now, do you fear that cases involving this are going to get to the Supreme Court? It's a really good question. So there's a bunch of lawsuits that have been engendered because of this, but one is the one that Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights filed. And that is a compensatory, meaning monetary damages, and for a restraining order. Against? Against DeSantis to, for doing this right. again, because right. there was, I don't know if you know, there was an attempt to do it to Delaware that we believe we scared off with all the mm-hmm. criminal investigation. There's talk of, there was a Nantucket false alarm this weekend. They were going to send in Nantucket. So to stop them from doing this again. And I do fear that that lawsuit would make it to the Supreme Court. And that would be really problematic because wh- here's why. There is a 2012 case called Arizona v. U.S. where Arizona tried to enact a misdemeanor criminal charge for being undocumented in Arizona, a misdemeanor charge for working without a- authorization in Arizona, things like that. And the Supreme Court said, no, immigration was federal and it's preempted by the federal government, which would make what DeSantis did clearly and unequivocally illegal. 
When did immigration become the devil term that it is now? What period of your life do you recall, or even in your studies and your work? Was it Goldwater and the John Birch days? Was it Reagan? When did immigration become something that was a negative in our lives? DeSantis's great-grandparents came here from Italy, and now he's done all this to immigrants. He's wounded all these immigrants this way. The reason I'm an immigration lawyer is the 1996 law signed into law by Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And that was, we call it EDPA and IRA-IRA. And that was the law that said that, it used to be that immigrants would go back and forth across the border. They'd come here, they'd work for two years, they'd go home, right? Because no one wants to leave their country. And EDPA and IRA-IRA, along with the militarization of the border, trapped people into the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's why our undocumented immigration population blossomed is because people, if they go home now, they are subject to lifetime bars on re-entering and they get expelled at the border. And if you stay, you may have a chance to regularize your status at some point in time in the future. Reagan actually did amnesty. I don't know why people don't talk about that, but I have many clients who got their green cards through Ronald Reagan's amnesty program. So I really think it was Clinton's law. That law then trapped people in the United States, forced them not to go, and then that caused this growing population of undocumented immigrants. What's next now in terms of your activities in the courts? Where where is everything headed in the immediate sense? So we will probably start hearings in the lawsuit filed by Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. I know that all of my lawyers right now who volunteered, we had every pro bono representation arranged for every single immigrant that arrived in Martha's Vineyard. They're all drafting their U visa applications and sending them to the government right now as we speak. So, And, and the last thing we really need for these individuals is work authorization. So we're working with the Biden administration and calling on them to issue, reissue paroles for these individuals so they can all apply for work authorization. My thanks to you, Susan Church, for all of your good work. And uh, I'm always happy to meet these heroes helping the desperate people who are getting deceived by the Perla Huertas of the world. I mean, this goes on and on, the insanity of this. But thank you so much and best of luck to you with uh, the rest of your uh, endeavors here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Immigration attorney Susan Church. My next guest, attorney Renata Lunn, is the director of training for New York County Defender Services, a firm that offers public defenders to those who cannot afford their own counsel. Lunn is a graduate of Columbia Law, has clerked for the Southern District of New York, and worked at the Legal Aid Society for over a decade before her work at NYCDS. I first spoke with Lunn in June of 2021, at a time when COVID had drastically changed the justice system. I wanted to know why she chose an admittedly difficult line of work. I like people. I love that they're complicated and full of contradictions, that I believe that no one is all good or all bad. It just made sense to me to be an advocate for people in a system where they're reduced to just one act, one thing. So the prosecutor tells a story in their criminal complaint or an indictment. It might not even be a true story, and it just captures one moment in a person's life. And as a public defender, I get to work with investigators, I get to know my client, I get to work with social workers, and find the nuances and complexity and context of that story, and then tell that story to prosecutors to juries, to judges. And so that was the calling. And there's a second piece of that, too, and that's the racial justice piece. The United States incarcerates more black people now than were enslaved under slavery. The civil rights battles of our generation are being fought in criminal court. I'd like to think if I was born 50 years earlier, I'd be a freedom rider in Mississippi. I don't know if I'd really have the courage for that. But I do know that I have the courage to be a public defender in the 21st century. Now, the New York County Defender Services, it says that it was in the research we did that was formed in 1997. What changed? What was the prior Office of Public Defenders in New York, and what was the, what, why was there a change? Sure. In New York City, up until the mid-'90s, there was just the only game in town was the Legal Aid Society. They had offices in all five boroughs. They do have offices in all five boroughs. A private ent- enterprise. Yes, that contracted with the city right. to provide public defender services. And Legal Aid Society was unionized at the time, and the union went on strike. And in order to break the strike, Giuliani, who was the mayor at the time, put out a call for other public defender agencies to be formed. And so at that time, Bronx Defenders, Brooklyn Defender Services, 
Queens Law Associates, which is now Queens Defenders, and New York County Defender Services were born. And this is completely government funded, There's no, or do you avail yourself of some, of some private funding as well? We would be delighted to accept private funding. <laughs> if anybody is listening and wants to make a donation, you can do so on our website. But most of our funding is from the city of New York as a contract provider, and also from, we get some state funding as well. And how many people in the staff? Over 100. We have 70 attorneys, but we also have investigators, social workers, paralegals, admin staff, civil attorney, immigration attorneys, data specialists. Now, I mean, I have many questions for you, but the first one that comes leaping to mind is the virtual courtroom. We've had a year and a half or so of virtual everything, and I'm wondering, what was uh, the—describe for me, because as a layman, the first question that comes to mind is, how can courts turn around and say, you got to go into a room with a computer and have your— what if you don't have an internet, you don't have a computer? What if you don't want to go into your lawyer's office who has a computer because of the COVID itself? How did this all shake out? Exactly. Oh, just picture the worst Zoom call you were on with your family or friends or or work associates, and now imagine that your liberty is at stake. I mean, imagine that Zoom call where grandma, you only see her forehead and then the, the wall and ceiling because she can't figure out how to, you know, use the visuals. Someone logging out and back in because their Wi-Fi is bad. Someone sounding like a sad robot. Like all those technical (laughs) issues, you have a judge calling in virtually. You have a court reporter calling in virtually. And so our clients, we try to guide them through using Microsoft Teams. That's the app the courts recommend using. Frequently, it doesn't work. So our clients will then call in via telephone. Sometimes we will the the public defender or the attorney will FaceTime with their client and then hold their iPhone up to their laptop so that the judge can see the face on FaceTime on someone's phone through the laptop. And we would try to conduct court that way. It really dehumanized our clients. But I'm also assuming that the legal community, not just NYCDS, your organization, but lawyers in general, the Bar Association, national or New York, had some significant protests about how fair this was. I mean, what if somebody didn't couldn't afford a phone? What if they didn't have a computer? What was offered to people that was safe, that was COVID safe, for them to appear, quote-unquote, in court? So for many people, their cases were just put on pause, in a sense. So the courts So people didn't, without those technological resources, they were punted. Usually if you don't show up to court, a warrant is issued for your arrest. It's called a bench warrant that the judge issues. And for many months during COVID, they just didn't issue warrants. And so I think there, there are probably many New Yorkers still out now who forgot about a case or thought, okay, I haven't had to go back to court for a year or it's COVID. I don't know what's going on, but who still have these, these open warrants. And our attorneys made every effort they could to contact clients, to write letters to homeless shelters. To, we sent investigators knocking on the doors of last known addresses. And we did offer the opportunity for clients to come into our office and use the computers. Some clients would meet at a counselor's office if they were already in some sort of program or try to use a, a public phone to call into court. But yeah, there's a lot of people I think who might have gotten lost in the system. I'm assuming that there are different types of cases where you're entitled to a jury trial if you want one? In New York, you're not entitled to a jury trial if the maximum sentence you could get is 90 days or less. That's for expediency's sake? Yeah. So a minor crime like attempted pettit larceny, attempted drug possession. You steal a woman's pocketbook in the park? Not even. It's stealing a woman's pocketbook in the park. If it's on her shoulder, that would be a grand larceny. That would be a felony. If really? uh, you steal a woman's <laughs> pocketbook in the park and it's maybe just sitting on a park bench while she's checking her phone, that could be pettit larceny, depending on what's in the pocketbook if it's worth less than $1,000. If you tried to take it and she said, oh, no, you, and grabs the pocketbook back, that would be the attempted pettit larceny. So for that, you don't have a right to a jury trial unless you're not a U.S. citizen. And then the Court of Appeals held, look, the immigration consequences, the consequences of being deported are graver than 90 days in jail. And so if you're facing serious immigration consequences, you have the right to a jury trial. Is it safe to assume that people showing up with a public defender that stigmatizes them in front of a jury and a judge? Yes, unfortunately, because we have, I think, some of the best attorneys in the country working in our office. And public defenders are, I think, on the whole, some of the best attorneys in general that you will find. But unfortunately, there is still this this stigma. So juries, we don't usually notify a jury. There's uh, that the public defender representing them. I don't have. You're not allowed to tell them. 
I could. It can be it can be a strategic call, right? Like if I'm representing someone who's charged with being involved in some sort of drug dealing scheme and the jury's going to see that they're represented by a public defender, they might say, well, yeah, this guy, and, and I'm arguing that, you know, my client wasn't involved or he was just a drug user who was being taken advantage of by the real drug dealers. Yeah. Then I He's might not wanna... Pablo Escobar. Exactly. He's not all lawyered up here. <laughs> exactly. So right. it's, a, it's a strategic decision if you want to look like your client could afford a, a fancy private lawyer right. or if you want to let the jury know this is an indigent person with a public defender. I have found in the few cases where I've ended up in court <laughs> in my life, There's been a couple of times I ended up in court for different things, but you realize that they really don't want people to go to trial. Yes and no. I mean, there is a lot of pressure to take pleas, and that pressure doesn't just come from the court. It often comes from the extenuating circumstances in our clients' lives. For example, you know, maybe they're involved in a custody dispute with their partner, and if they go to trial and lose, it would look a lot worse than if they just pled guilty to harassment and did a batterer's intervention program or something like that. Or... Often people are suspended from work while there's an open case. There's uh, Security licenses might be suspended. TLC licenses are suspended if you have an open case. So there's a lot of incentive for people to take any kind of Get plea, it over with. Get it over with so that they can return to work. And, of course, immigration consequences, too, play a big role in people's decision-making. When you come into a courtroom, you see some pretty intense circumstances that people live under. And I would imagine there's a constant flow of people where homelessness, joblessness, drug addiction is a big part of... um, Do do people in your office, even though they're not called upon to... Uh, to comment about this publicly, do they develop opinions about what they think are social programs that might be adjusted to lower crime? Social services that we all you're not allowed to comment on. No, actually, I am allowed to comment, and it's funny that you should say that because I think the notion of a public defender has expanded in the last 10 or 20 years, where it used to be we just put our heads down and do individual cases. Now we're looking more systemically and Mm -hmm. thinking about systemic problems. That's what I thought, yeah. Right? And so, as far as what we would like to see as far as social services, a big one is just mental health services, Mm -hmm. mental health, including substance use, because so often the the response is, oh, there's someone who's talking to themselves on the subway platform. Let's call the police. And we've all seen the, the worst case scenarios of what happens when then mm. the police end up killing someone. Or that person pushes somebody in front or of a some, train. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and things just get elevated quickly. And so there's not a lot of options for people who have mental illness to get treatment, to have the support, to have housing. So mental illness comes to mind. Drug treatment, making sure that that's available. And just... Getting police out of schools. New York recently raised the age. We used to have one of the lowest ages when someone could be charged with a crime. And so as would, an adult. Yeah. So I would represent like 16 year olds who got into fights in high school. I mean, just fist fights. I'm not talking about right. anything that I didn't see in my all white high school. Behavior and, that principals of the school used to take care of. Exactly. Exactly. Or parents or right. communities. Detention. And then the police would come. Suspension. And then they've got, and if two people are assaulting one person, if more than one person is involved, it becomes a felony. It's a violent felony. All this stuff. So just getting police out of schools, having letting schools focus on education, I think those would be my, my two big things. What I find interesting is this idea that we've increased criminal penalties in order to monetize the system and for people to make money. You know, mandatory sentences. I mean, I am a huge opponent of mandatory sentences. You elect judges. They're appointed by people. We're supposed to accept these appointments and these election results for people who have tremendous power. And then we say, you can't use your judgment. Here's your mandatory sentencing guideline. Well, what is your opinion of mandatory sentencing? Oh, oh, I think they're horrible. They handcuff judges. And like you said, each case is unique. Each individual is unique. And to say that this idea that somehow someone is going to learn a lesson after seven years that they won't learn after five years and certainly wouldn't learn after three years, like, it's absurd to me. And it just doesn't make any sense. I think we've gotten more draconian in terms of the idea of rehabilitation and what we do with these people once they're put away has become like a distant second. It's not even on the on the charts, rehabilitation. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, funds are being cut for that. There used to be Pell Grants so that people in prison could go to college and take college courses while in prison. And that was found to reduce recidivism, but that was cut. One of my pet peeves is what we call the copaganda police shows, right? The Law and Order and CSI and all those spinoffs that just show crime as being done by a very bad scheming person who can't be rehabilitated and doesn't, again, doesn't tell the complexity of a, of a story. And also, 
the majority of people we represent, the majority of cases are misdemeanors. There's nonviolent felonies. There's even cases that sound like violent crimes. The man who was taking the hats off of people, you know, on the Coney Island subways 50 years ago, that could have been maybe charged even as a robbery in the second degree if he was doing that with friends. Again, sounds like a violent crime, these marauding youth. But when you take a step back and hear the stories and get the context, it's never that sort of CSI villain. It's never so cut and dry. So you've been at this for a while. You've been at this for over 15 years. What's the new crop of lawyers like? How are they different from you? Oh, are they? Yes. What's wonderful about them is, again, I you know keep coming back to these racial justice issues, but I read The New Jim Crow after I was a public defender. Then we started interviewing people who read The New Jim Crow in law school. Then we started interviewing people who read The New Jim Crow in college and were inspired by it. Now we're interviewing people who read The New Jim Crow in high school, were inspired by that, knew they wanted to be a public defender, so they took whatever classes in college and interviews and col- or internships in college that could get them on a path to doing criminal law, went to law school knowing they wanted to be a public defender. Like, these are people who are supremely dedicated to the job and have thought about it for many years. So already they are coming with this this understanding of the systemic problems of the criminal legal system. They're not just motivated by, you know, upholding the Constitution and the right to counsel in the Sixth Amendment, but by a very deep drive for justice, not just for our clients, but in the entire system. And so it's become incredibly competitive to be a public defender. Like we get thousands of resumes. We are turned down people who go to top law schools because they don't have what we're looking for, that drive to try cases, the ability to relate to clients. It is one of the most competitive jobs you can get after law school. That's amazing to me. And yeah, I wish I, I wanted to, to get that message out there because like Columbia, I went to Columbia. So their their office will often reach out to me and say, hey, we've got a great crop of five people who want to be public defenders this year. You know, they'll interview with my office. Um, they stay connected with you. They stay connected, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't guarantee a job in my office. Right. And as I told my... I'm stunned told to my, that many applicants. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and <clears throat> you know, the... The year that we interviewed several people from Columbia, I think there was just one that we hired and the others, they've landed in other places around the country. But yeah, it's it's very difficult. As I say to my my boss, whenever we do the hiring process, I feel like it's like drowning puppies. You know, we can't keep all the puppies in the litter. So, But they're incredibly smart, bright, talented, dedicated people. When you speak about your career and the work you do, and you're obviously so heartfelt and you're so dedicated to this work, and I'm so impressed that there's people like you in this world of public defending who really care on this level. I have this silly image of you sitting there uh, having lunch with a friend of yours who went to Columbia, and she's at a big litigating firm, and she's got, you know, the $30,000 wristwatch and the hand. Like, there's a whole world you could have had that you have forsaken in order to do this kind of work. Do you ever have any regrets? No, not not for a second. You talked about New York and, and, and challenges of working in New York City. And one is that there, you are next to so much wealth, right? You're proximate mm-hmm. to so much wealth. A lot of our new attorneys have roommates. If they started a big law firm, you know, they could practically buy a house with their summer bonus. But the work is meaningful. It's rewarding. It's fun. And at the end of the day, one of the beautiful things about being a public defender is you have a lot of autonomy and setting of your own schedule as far as You know, you have to be in court at a certain time and you have to make sure you make time to meet with clients. But other than that, your time is your own. You don't answer to a partner in a law firm who calls you on Friday night and says, "Okay, cancel your weekend plans. In some ways, they earn that money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so my husband loves to cook. And, you know, I've said I would love to be able to buy you a huge house with a huge kitchen. But Is he a lawyer? No. But then we'd never be able to eat in it, right? And then I'd never get to eat your cooking. So I'd rather eat your cooking in our humble kitchen. Attorney Renata Lunn. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Renata Lunn gives her take on rising crime rates in New York and how those statistics are misleading.
Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I originally spoke with Renata Lunn of New York County Defender Services in June of 2021 when COVID held a strong grip on the court system. I decided to have Lunn back to get an update on her work since the city's reopening. Another development since we last spoke was the swearing-in of Mayor Eric Adams on January 1st, 2022. Adams has inherited an increasingly problematic Rikers Island Correctional Facility. It's a constant storm of violence, disorder, and staff absenteeism, with inmates going without food or medical care, and where 17 people have died this year. While candidate Adams campaigned to close the facility, Mayor Adams wants to transition to Plan B and find an alternative to shuttering the jail. I wanted to know Lund's take on New York City's new mayor and the moves he's made since entering office. Whew, disappointing. It's disappointing to hear someone say that he wants to bring back solitary. It was disappointing that he did not keep on Vince Giraldi, who was really trying his best as commissioner of corrections. You know, Rikers is still in crisis, and it's not getting How is that possible? It is a virtually intractable problem. You know, I... Been thinking about this, how Rikers is just, there are no adjectives, right? Inhumane, torturous. City-owned. For those who don't yeah. know New York, That's Rikers is city-owned, Joe. Yeah. And since around the time of COVID, since we last spoke, a lot of corrections officers call out sick. They have unlimited sick time. There's sort of no consequences for calling out sick, which is awful for our clients because if there's not enough staff in Rikers, they aren't protected. But they also don't get escorts. There's a vacuum. It's filled by the inmates. Right, right. So we have clients answering the phones, escorting each other to places, often locked in because they can't be escorted to a council visit, can't be escorted to medical, can't be escorted to get their medications or for a checkup or to, for visits to see family. So they're locked in because there just aren't enough officers to escort them. So it's awful from our client's perspective, also from a lawyer's perspective, because it's difficult for us to communicate with our clients. Our clients are often not even produced to court. But also from the CO's perspective, if you know going to work on a Friday morning means that there's a good chance the person who's supposed to relieve you isn't going to show up because they're going to call out sick, and you know there's a good chance you're going to be asked to work a double or maybe a triple, well, then maybe you call out sick because you don't have the child care. For Friday afternoon. But why, but why does, I mean, again, I don't assume you know the answer yeah. <laughs> to these questions. No, but when you, when you look at Rikers and you hear the stories, 
I think most people, including myself, who I can have as jaundiced a view of that system as anybody, but I look at and I think that the stories I hear, I think to myself, that can't be true. Yeah. That can't be true that you have a facility right off the coast. of. It's not like this place is up in upstate New York in the middle of the farm country, out of view. Who is responsible for the fact that Rikers is this, like, hall of mirrors? It's like something out of a Ryan Murphy streaming series. Like, how did it become—who's responsible for the maintenance of Rikers and its staff? Yeah. And, I, and, and why has it been allowed to deteriorate to this degree? And I think you say that it's not in the middle of nowhere upstate, but like I went upstate apple picking last weekend. Like there's more people. It's easier to get upstate and go apple picking or whatever for, for most people than to cross that bridge, go through all the levels of security and see the conditions on that island. Do they have very strict rules about the, the media coming to examine that place? You know, I don't know what the media rules right. are. I know that elected officials have done some visits, but even, you know, when they're trying to pretty it up for elected officials, I'm sure you read the reports, like people were attempting suicide in front of the city council members who were touring Rikers last fall. All I know is that we need to see a proposal which shuts down Rikers and those people are moved somewhere. And to the extent you can accommodate the access to council and the access to family thing, you do. But in other words, I don't think access to council and access to family demands that they stay somewhere where they're going to die. No. And so I think the, the plan... And, and where I'm the not, guards are useless. Yeah. I'm not... At 100% up to date on the plan during the de Blasio administration, but there was a plan to close Rikers and revamp some of the borough-based facilities. Like, there already is the Manhattan Correctional Center, MCC. There's one in Brooklyn, Brooklyn House of Detention. There's one in Queens. Like, to make sure that there are facilities that are state-of-the-art near all all the courthouses, one in each borough, so that families can visit, attorneys can visit. So, covid yeah. has at least what you read in the paper has receded significantly. I still look at my app and see that there's 44,000 deaths so far this year. We've crossed over to, I think it's 1.06, 1,600,000 people dead nationally. But COVID is less of an issue than it is, and people are back to normal life, comparatively speaking, pretty well. Do you find that in your work that that's, that's impacting your work as well? Is the recession of the receding of COVID beneficial? Yes. You know, trials are back up and happening. Our office just completed one yesterday, got a full acquittal. And what, what kind of case? Can you say? Um, assault, misdemeanor assault. Even this spring, people were wearing shields or witnesses were wearing shields when they testified. Jurors were socially distanced, but now jurors are sitting back in the jury box. Witnesses aren't wearing masks. So that's good. That feels back to normal. There's still the backlog. And like I said, there's still the crisis at Rikers, which and, you know, 16 deaths this year that weighs. And then in addition to that, you know, I think public defender offices around the country sort of reckoned with the great resignation so well, I have that here. It says, yeah. <laughs> it says that the Times reported that hundreds of staffers have left NYCPD organizations over low pay in the last year. The Legal Aid Society lost 10% of its staff, or about 200 people over the past 12 months. Brooklyn Defender Services has lost 40 attorneys, or 27% of its staff. And the New York County Defender Services has lost 30 attorneys, or 24% of its staff. And what I'm wondering is, the ones that are staying... And they're all pretty much underpaid. The ones who stay, why do they stay? Why don't they quit? It is still the best job in the world. Like, it's intellectually engaging. Like, law and criminal law, you get to make arguments. It's intellectually stimulating. You get to be—and then you get to be creative. You get to be creative in your reason and logic and making creative arguments. You get to be creative in how you present information, whether it's mitigating information to a prosecutor. You know, we write pre-pleading memos. Sometimes we even record videos or show pictures to the prosecutors or to the judges to try to get better plea deals. And of course, you know, trial is, you know, like a theater show, right? You're telling a story, you're presenting information persuasively, you're thinking about how you're coming across to a jury and all that. And you get to help people too. Like, what more could you ask for? Every once in a while, I'll peruse, you know, wanted ads thinking, am I ready for a career change? And I just can't find anything that's that's as good and as meaningful and as fun. Yeah. Now, crime rates are up, according to the NYPD. Shootings are down, but overall crime is up 31 percent from 2021, just a year ago. And the media has titled this to bail reform and lenient sentencing and policies. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, we're still the safest big city in the country. Statewide, I think 
crime levels are down to pre-pandemic levels. And one of the biggest drivers of crime is police arrests. So if police make a lot of arrests, it looks like crime is up. And so if they're stopping and arresting people for smoking K2 or giving out lots of summonses for that or summonses for driving with a suspended license, they can say that arrests are up. It doesn't necessarily mean that that crime is up. Mm -hmm. So it's been really disappointing to see the media get behind and not question the police and the police unions and unfortunately the mayor getting behind it too whenever they say that reform in criminal legal and our criminal legal system and our criminal justice policy is causing crime rates because if you look nationwide you know there was a spike in crime post covid in cities with conservative district attorneys and in cities with reform district attorneys and that was just sort of universal and they're making bail a punching bag in a way that i i don't think is accurate or fair so in 2019 the city instituted its bail reform and you had about a year of data before the pandemic hit. What did you see in terms of how bail reform worked differently? Actually, the bail laws were passed in 2019. They didn't go into effect until January 1st, 2020. The pandemic hits. I think everything started, the court started closing down March 17th. So we only had two and a half months of bail reform. And what we saw was that people were reunited with their families, that people could fight their cases, that we didn't have so many people taking jail sentences, people getting the help they needed or people being able to get acquittals or lesser pleas. Let me actually give an example to to clarify that. So when I was practicing as a, a line public defender, I do training now. So when I had my own full caseload, 10 years ago, you would have people who were arrested for jumping a turnstile, misdemeanor possession of drugs, whatever. Bail would be set because maybe they were a repeat offender, they were homeless, they didn't have a job, they didn't show up to their last court date. Bail would be set at $500. They couldn't pay $500. The case would be adjourned for five days. Five days later, a judge would say, look, I'll give him time served. I'll give him a 10-day sentence. And then the client, you know, regardless of the merits of fighting the case, would say, look, I'd, I'd like to get out today. So we'd have a lot of people taking these 10-day sentences, 15-day sentences, just to get out. With bail reform, those people are now released, and we can get them into a drug treatment program. We can help our social workers in our office, can help get them jobs. There's a lot of city money and city agencies that are also working to provide alternatives to incarceration. So instead, on that next court date, we're saying, okay, we'll reduce the charge of something non-criminal, and the client is now doing, you know, a drug treatment program. So with bail reform, we're seeing fewer criminal convictions, fewer people in jail. And as we talked about, jail is a pretty rotten place right now, torturous place, and more people reunited with their families. Now, obviously, in a city that has a significant perception of people, and many of them voters, who are swayed by, you know, questionable sources of media, and they see the demonization of the bail reform thing, what do you think is the public relations key that has to be turned for people to understand why bail reform is in their interest, the interest of the general public? The lawyer brain in me wants to say, well, maybe we can just provide some more data. Maybe we can just show people that, you know, we're saving money by not putting people, we're not incarcerating people. Maybe we can show people that the vast, vast majority of people are not rearrested. Like over 90% of the people who are released under bail reform are not rearrested. That's but a I huge know, factor. Right. But I know that data does, is not how we make decisions. It falls on deaf ears. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know we have calorie charts at, on our menus now in New York City, <laughs> but... My stomach says and I want the donuts fries. Are still I'm going yeah, exactly, to shelf. Yeah. exactly, right? Believe so, me. I think you know it's up to us, public defenders, to do the work of telling our clients' stories and talking about the individual people and the individual lives that are that are changed because of bail reform, and and trying to get people to to latch onto that. Just as we see marijuana laws being thrown out the window, just being completely vacated, which is which is fine. That doesn't bother me uh, on any level. But what other, what other laws would you like to see reformed that you think would make a real impact on the work you do? What are laws that you think are just need to be revisited and changed? I think there's been an emphasis on decriminalization of a lot of petty crimes like drugs. So I would say drug possession for personal use, just all of that should be decriminalized. Um, completely. Yeah. And I think there has been, like, again, it's marijuana completely, almost completely in New York now, almost. When you're training people for the work you're doing, what's the one thing you want to make sure they understand about the job? What do you mm. hope they really, really understand? That it's not about you. It's about your client. 
that it's really I say that and we t- we started off by talking about what makes people stay and one thing I wanted to address is that you know what makes people stay is also creating hopefully an atmosphere where people feel supported and people feel like they can take care of themselves. There's a lot of discussion about wellness around our country and definitely in public defender offices too. You know, our office, we don't send emails after five. We encourage people to take their vacation time, like mm-hmm. actively say, don't check email on vacation. We will, we, you know. So I say all that, but then I also say it's about your client, right? It's not about mm-hmm. your ego. It's about what's right for your client. And I balancing that with... That doesn't mean you lose yourself entirely, but whatever happens, it's your client's decision and understanding where our clients are are coming from, having empathy with them and knowing that when you work hard, it is, there's a real human life at stake. And so it really deserves your best effort. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank Um, you. My thanks to attorneys Renata Lunn and Susan Church for their tireless efforts helping the less fortunate every day. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.